The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. Hello and welcome to HealthEd's Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday the 13th of October. In this COVID update, Professor Nancy Baxter will be covering important topics on the elimination of isolation periods and mask mandates and whether these are good decisions or not. Nancy will look at whether or not we should be expecting the next variant by late this year and what it might be like in terms of transmission and severity an update on the vaccination landscape, including recently approved jabs, the bivalent vaccine and vaccination for children. She will also discuss the new nasal swab test that is about to become available. It's not a rat and it might be more accurate. Will it change anything on a practical level? Well, thanks very much. Today I'm going to give um, the latest COVID update um, to give you a little bit of information about where we're at with the COVID pandemic, uh, what we can expect to happen in the near future, and some um, thoughts about treatment and testing. Well, the current status of the pandemic in Australia, fortunately, we have seen the crest of the BA5 wave and we are now in a downward trend. So we're now reporting um, data weekly for, uh, for COVID versus daily um, and uh, about 40,000 cases over the week uh, last week. Of course, uh, testing is much less uh, um, uh, reflective of the actual number of COVID cases now uh, as uh, testing is much less widely done. Um, down in terms of death, 190 deaths, and that's uh, 92 less than the week before. Uh, hospitalizations down and also ICU down. A little bit concerning is the um, effective reproductive number. So uh, how, how uh, rapidly um, COVID is spreading, uh, is starting to edge towards one. Uh, and that's where you have a growing uh, uh, epidemic versus a contracting one. Um, so that is something to watch in terms of whether we've reached the plateau uh, and whether we may start to go up again uh, in terms of the outbreak, particularly with all of the restrictions and protections uh, relaxing. So again, this is just to demonstrate on the top, we have hospitalizations by state, uh, and on the bottom we have deaths. We have, fortunately, the BA5 wave has crested and seems to be uh, um, well and truly uh, over the peak, um, but uh, we do have to acknowledge that this was the worst wave of COVID-19 that Australia has seen in terms of the number of hospitalizations and sadly, the number of deaths from COVID-19. And this is reflected uh, in excess mortality. So, you know, there are several actuarial groups that report excess mortality. They have slightly different uh, percentages that were over uh, expected mortality this year. Um, this is the most conservative uh, that looks at um, what we'd expect to have in terms of deaths in Australia, given aging population, et cetera, as compared to what we're currently experiencing. So this more conservative estimate for the first half of the year is that Australia has 
has 13% more deaths than expected. Half of these are due to COVID, and it's thought that a substantial amount of the additional 50%, while not attributed to COVID, are actually long-term consequences of COVID. So people having you know, deaths from clotting um, several months later, or deaths from MIs that seem to be related to COVID several months later. Uh, and currently COVID uh, is on track to be the third most common cause of death in Australia. So a substantial disease burden uh, and um, uh, a substantial impact on, um, <clears throat> on, on Australia in terms of, uh, terms of the lives uh, of Australians. Um, but uh, this question is currently being asked and that's, uh, is the pandemic over? Uh, and uh, it's very interesting to look at this because there's really no one that declares the pandemic over. There's no agreed upon definition of when a pandemic is over. This is the technical definition of a pandemic. So the public health or scientific definition of a pandemic. So it's an epidemic of an infectious disease that spreads across a large region, for example, multiple continent, continents, uh, affecting substantial numbers of individuals. Um, so that's as uh, opposed to an, an endemic disease, which is a stable number of infected individuals. So that's not a pandemic. So really technically, no, no one would consider the pandemic to be over. It continues to spread across continents, new variants, uh, consider, continues to uh, have a burden on, on societies in terms of the healthcare system function and illness of the population. So technically the pandemic is not over. But pandemics aren't just defined technically. So they're not just defined by public health and science. They're also a social, political, and, uh, and really a psychological um, uh, 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 event. Uh, and socially and politically, uh, COVID-19 uh, has been essentially declared over, declared over the pandemic, declared over by our politicians. And really psychologically, people are not willing to do much to, um, to decrease the risk of COVID-19 to others. Uh, and so uh, really from a psychological perspective, uh, the pandemic uh, is over. And this has led to changes, major changes in Australia in terms of how we manage COVID. We know that there's the end of isolation rules. So individuals who, um, uh, who test positive do, can use their uh, own judgment in terms of whether they isolate or not. It's not mandatory. And also now the end of mandatory reporting. So if someone has a positive test, they no longer have to mandatorily report that test. Um, this will make it very harder, um, um, considerably harder to track the pandemic. Uh, we'll need to kind of now follow hospitalizations really versus any testing. So it'll make it, uh, given that hospitalizations follow testing by about seven to 10 days, it'll make it harder to detect exactly when changes in COVID have, will occur. Uh, and it'll also mean that the next wave of COVID will accelerate faster and probably be harder to control um, than previous waves. Um, but nevertheless, the pandemic, so Socially, politically, and psychologically is over. And so that means that our restrictions and protections are now over as well. And as we've seen with BA5, we're unlikely to bring them back even when we see waves of disease. And this may make it hard for many of you. Um, so many um, GPs uh, continue to have protective measures uh, in, say, their waiting room and for their staff. This is both important to protect their staff from people who may be coming in from COVID-19, but also very important in terms of protecting people in the waiting rooms from, um, uh, you know, elderly people, people at a risk from others uh, in the room. Obviously, in terms of masking, masking is much more effective if everyone's wearing a mask. So many people still have masking uh, rules within um, their 
their offices uh, for good reason. Uh, but this is uh, becoming um, uh, more challenging to maintain with patients, even with staff. And this is a, a, a tweet uh, by one of the uh, Australian reporters um, that actually got a huge amount of pushback from um, the interweb um, in terms of uh, this individual feeling that it was humil humiliating to go to their uh, GP's office uh, wearing a mask. Uh, obviously, there are good reasons to continue to have these protective measures within the office, but it's probably going to become more challenging. And that means, again, GPs are going to be having to walk this tightrope where they're trying to protect their patients, um, but uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, deal with the lived realities of everyone being over the pandemic. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, I, I think this is just something, one more thing we're going to have to deal with uh, because the COVID's not over. There continues to be a large amount of COVID, and we need to figure out how we best manage that within our practices. Um, and one of the things that I think we need to do in terms of managing this uh, is to optimize the use of antivirals. Uh, we know there's still lots of COVID. So even though the COVID numbers have declined, there's still a lot of COVID and with no restrictions uh, and no protections and also how infectious Omicron is, there is going to be lots of COVID in our midst for the, for the um, foreseeable future. So that means there are many potentially preventable deaths, many people who uh, uh, whose outcome could be improved by the use of antivirals. Um, we also know that there will be another wave. That, that is uh, absolutely true, that there will be another wave of COVID. When that will be, it's hard to predict, and how bad it will be is also hard to predict. But there will be another, another peak of COVID in the future. So we need to figure out how we optimize antivirals to try to prevent these potentially preventable deaths. Now, we know that antivirals are recommended by the National COVID Clinical Evidence Task Force. So that's the main task force that looks at treatments and gives evidence about, about uh, gives recommendations about evidence um, and about treatments uh, for people with COVID-19. And so there's a conditional recommendation to give antivirals to individuals over age 60 or with uh, conditions that make them at increased risk of dying of COVID-19. Um, uh, so there's some clear indications uh, and then some indications that are likely, uh, they didn't have enough patients in trials, but are likely, uh, because they increase risk, likely uh, these people will benefit from uh, antivirals. Now, uh, this is only for the unvaccinated because that's uh, the trial of, um, uh, of Paxlovid uh, for, um, for um, uh, for the prevention of death and hospitalization uh, only included unvaccinated individuals and it was pre-Omicron. So uh, we don't have trial inf information or data in the Omicron era, um, but we do know how now have for antivirals, we do now have uh, some real world efficacy data in the, um, the vaccinated era. And this is um, some uh, information, it was just published last week from, uh, from The Lancet from Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong has a lower rate of vaccination than we do in Australia, but they, similar to Australia, have had uh, a fair amount of molnupiravir use as well as Paxlovid. Um, and uh, molnupiravir was used, uh, was available earlier in Hong Kong, so it was used early on in the Omicron wave, Paxlovid later. Um, so with molnupiravir, um, you can see that uh, there was a substantial improvement in all-cause mortality in individuals who used molnupiravir as compared to 
to controls, people who did not um, uh, have, uh, have molnupiravir. Um, uh, and uh, also, uh, disease progression within hospitals was improved, but there was no difference between hospitalization in those groups. And that's in contrast to Paxlovid. Paxlovid, where you saw a more marked reduction in, um, in all-cause mortality, a reduction in hospitalization, and a reduced in-hospital disease progression. These two groups are, these two, two groups are, are not really comparable because the molnupiravir arm, um, these, these folks uh, seem to be sicker um, and were less likely to be vaccinated than the Paxlovid arm, probably because they were earlier in the Omicron outbreak. But still it appears from this that Paxlovid and molnupiravir are effective, but Paxlovid does appear to be more effective than molnupiravir in, in a more uh, contemporary cohort with Omicron. So there's that. Um, the second study that's important in terms of real-world evidence is from Israel uh, and looks at the impact of Paxlovid uh, in Israel on, um, on hospitalization due to COVID. Um, what's important here is that um, the, the individuals that were in this study primarily had some immunity. So 90% were either vaccinated or had had COVID before. And what this showed uh, was um, even in individuals with immunity, for those over 65, there was still a dramatic in impact on hospitalization. So um, in, in patients with immunity, about a third of the hospitalizations as compared to, to those who did not receive Paxlovid. Uh, for those uh, without immunity, it was even uh, a stronger impact. Now this was primarily in uh, individuals uh, over age 65 for those uh, who'd had uh, immunized or had had, um, had, had uh, COVID in the past. So seems from both of these studies that there's fairly clear evidence that Paxlovid, at least for individuals over age 65, even if they're vaccinated in the Omicron era, get a benefit from antivirals, particularly Paxlovid. Less certain about those under age 65. Um, now, Many of you who've used Paxlovid have likely had a patient that's had Paxlovid rebound. So they become, uh, they, they develop COVID-19, they go on Paxlovid, they improve, and then their symptoms come back after uh, they have stopped their Paxlovid. Um, and it does appear that this is um, a, a significant uh, uh, problem. Very few of those people have severe disease with their rebound. And what's important to note is that this is likely something that occurs uh, even without, uh, without the use of Paxlovid. So some people will get better and then, um, and then uh, get worse again uh, if they do not have uh, Paxlovid as well as if they do. So this is from the original um, study, the original trial of Paxlovid uh, for, um, for uh, patients with uh, COVID-19. Uh, and uh, you see, you you have um, the viral teeters as well as uh, the, the viral load rebound uh, for both the Paxlovid arm and the placebo arm, and both look very similar in terms of the rate of rebound. So this is likely a phenomenon that occurs with uh, COVID-19 infection versus something that occurs specifically to Paxlovid, uh, although it may be more noticeable to patients um, with, uh, that are on Paxlovid as compared to those who, who are not on Paxlovid. So what does this mean? Um, for most patients that you'll be seeing uh, who have COVID-19, um, they'll be vaccinated individuals. Uh, and so we have guidance that uh, there's a consensus recommendation that folks that are at higher risk uh, are, um, are eligible for Paxlovid and can be given Paxlovid. So this is either based on age or based on multiple risk factors. 
Uh, and so at, at the COVID-19 evidence group does have some great materials that you can access online. Um, so this is a flow sheet for Paxlovid. Um, I, I think it's probably something that's worth, you know, printing out and, and putting on your desk that talks about who is eligible uh, and, um, and, you know, drug interactions and, uh, and um, uh, how to manage people with COVID-19 who are eligible for Paxlovid. So Paxlovid is considered first line for these uh, individuals if they're at risk. In terms of uh, eligibility um, for PBS coverage, um, this is restricted to those age 70 and older, so no risk factors age 70 or older, or uh, over age 50 uh, with two additional risk factors, or for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander individuals um, uh, older than 30 with two additional risk factors. I must say from looking at the evidence, the real world evidence, it does seem that 65 would likely be the age at which this uh, was um, was likely to benefit patients, um, but the, um, the PBS eligibility is restricted to 70 and older. Um, Paxlovid continues to be underutilized. Now, uh, eligibility was expanded um, during the BA5 wave to those 70 and over without any uh, additional risk factor, and in use increased greatly with expansion of that eligibility. But still, uh, it is underutilized. Not everyone who could benefit from Paxlovid is receiving it. And we're still seeing uh, you know, a, a real number of Australians die every day from COVID-19. Um, and likely that's because the reason they're not getting it is because it's very, very challenging. These people have to get Paxlovid within five days of onset of symptoms. Uh, and that means patients need to know that it's an option. Patients need to be tested and get a positive test. And then uh, patients need to see their GP and then get the medication. So that's a lot of steps that need to happen within a very short period of time. And you know, I, I myself have told a number of people um, that they might be eligible for Paxlovid. So it's not, doesn't seem to be common knowledge amongst individuals that they uh, might, be, uh, elig might be eligible uh, for medications that could improve their outcome. So I think it's important as GPs to make a, a plan with eligible patients. So with patients who would be eligible for Paxlovid, it's important to be preemptive and make a plan with them in terms of what will happen if they get COVID. Because I, I think you can assume they're going to contract COVID, probably assume they're going to contract COVID again. Uh, we're doing very little to mitigate it and COVID is definitely out there. So assume people are going to get COVID and make a plan with them in terms of how they will be able to access Paxlovid or other antivirals quickly. Now, in terms of molnupiravir or Legvero, um, that is not recommended as first line. If a patient is eligible for Paxlovid, and as you saw from the data, uh, although the real world data isn't perfect, Paxlovid does seem to be superior. So um, Legvero uh, can be used in people who are not eligible, generally because of drug interactions uh, that, uh, with drugs that cannot be stopped for brief periods of time. Um, so these uh, individuals should be considered for molnupiravir. So what's next? What can we think about? Uh, what, what, what do we need to think about in terms of happening next with the, the COVID pandemic? 
Well, what we're sadly seeing now in the UK with the return to school and um, people, people going indoors after the summer months is we're now seeing the next wave of COVID-19 start. So this is hospitalization uh, tracking to September 29th and you can start to see the uptick in hospitalizations in the UK. Uh, and uh, this next week has gotten even worse. So um, COVID is again on the rise in Europe and the United Kingdom. And actually the most recent COVID data shows one in 50 people are currently infected in England. Uh, again, with very little mitigate, no mitigations and uh, uh, much more restricted testing, uh, people going to work with COVID-19 and to school, uh, one can expect that the, the wave is going to, um, to get much higher uh, and leading to a lot of COVID in England again. Uh, and part of this is because of the uh, because of the increase in variants. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about what variants we're looking at now, how variants are evolving, and what we can expect from them. Uh, and this looks like a confusing slide, and that's because the variant situation is really almost like a soup right now. There are many, many variants, and uh, no one um, is looks like the next dominant um, subvariant. Um, so what we're seeing really. Uh, is that all the new subvariants are descendant from Omicron. So there's no new non-Omicron variant. They're all uh, related to Omicron in the Omicron family. And BA5, well, what we just recently had uh, the last wave of, uh, is still causing the majority of infections. Um, but what we're seeing is a real drift. So we're seeing a lot of change within the Omicron family. It's a drift more akin to uh, what we see in the flu. So changes, but not radical changes in most years. Um, but it's much more rapid than the flu. So the flu may drift within two years what Omicron's doing within three months. So very rapid evolution. Um, the one people are talking about mainly is BA 2.75.2, very trendy name. Um, it's more immune evasive and seems to affect treatments more. So Evushield, other monoclonals are less effective for this particular variant. But still, it's not necessarily the one that's, that's going to dominate. There are a number of others, I've listed them here, um, that are taking off in certain regions or seem to be uh, potentially important subvariants. What is interesting is they seem there seems to be convergent evolution. So the mutations in these variants, there seem to be similar mutations, um, although you know some dissimilar, but the similar ones seem to infer increased uh, immune ev evasion in these um, these variants that really seem to be the ones that are taking off. So that seems to be a common pathway. Um, mutations that lead to increased immune evasion. Um, and in terms of what happens next, in part it's going to be what variant um, develops the most powerful immune evasion, but also which is starting to ascend at the time that our immunity from prior infections and from our boosters and primary vaccination is, is waning. Um, and so that for Australia kind of is starting around now, uh, probably going into the summer months. So what's next for vaccines? So um, we have the bivalent vaccine. So what's available in Australia now? So this has been um, conditionally approved by ATAGI and will be available very soon, um, if not already available in some places, uh, is the Moderna bivalent vaccine. So this is uh, 50 micrograms uh, of a dose um, versus uh, 100 micrograms for the primary. So this cannot be used as a primary vaccination. Uh, it's 50-50 ancestral strain, a vaccine against the ancestral strain and against BA1. Now, Moderna does have a BA4-5 um, um, uh, 
vaccine, bivalent vaccine as well. Um, and it's just starting, very much starting the approval process with Atagi. But currently available is the BA1 bivalent vaccine. Pfizer has a BA um, of five a bivalent vaccine uh, and um, there's no information about what's progressing in terms of approval uh, with Atagi there. The current Atagi recommendations for the use of the bivalent vaccine, it's again not recommended for primary vaccination but can be used instead of the current vaccine for any booster dose. Now there's been no recommendation in terms of changes for booster eligibility before the fourth, beyond the fourth dose. There's no recommendation that everyone get another dose of, uh, of um, a vaccination because we now have the bivalent vaccine. Um, and there's so, there's no recommendation in terms of that at all. In fact, there's no recommendation for when we should get our additional booster yet. Um, and I would anticipate that the recommendations are largely going to follow um, the uh, next wave of COVID. So um, I, I think that there might be some desire to move vaccination to once a year. So some hope that we'll be able to get to a year since our last vaccination before we boost. What I would anticipate is happening is we'll have another wave and then uh, we'll be um, saying to people that they can uh, get their fifth booster uh, as long as they've been three months since their last and their fifth booster will likely be the bi of the bivalent variety. Now, what is the evidence that the bivalent uh, vaccine works? So this is basically based on uh, neutralizing antibodies. So they looked to see uh, after boosting with the, um, uh, the bivalent booster um, as to whether uh, the neutralizing antibodies were higher with the bivalent versus with the original vaccine. Uh, and they did show that there's increased neutralizing antibodies to BA1 uh, if you use the bivalent va vaccine versus the original vaccine. Now, um, we do think that with the bivalent vaccine, we do something called epitope broadening. So we allow the body to learn how to develop immunity to a variety of COVID-19 uh, antigens, uh, and it allows the immune system to be um, a bit more savvy in terms of recognizing alternate forms of COVID-19. So it allows us to broaden the epitope that the immune system responds to. But obviously a, a vaccine to BA1 is not going to be as effective for BA5 uh, as a BA5 vaccine. Um, and we do have data about that. So this looks at the um, Moderna, the current Moderna BA1 vaccine and looks at the, um, uh, the uh, neutralizing antibodies developed to BA5 and compares the new uh, bivalent to the original. Uh, and what you can see is pre-booster, uh, the immunity is similar between these two groups. Post-booster, the immunity is considerably higher to BA5 after the bivalent uh, the, the, the vaccine we have now, the BA1 bivalent vaccine. Uh, and this is in um, antibody levels that are protective against COVID-19. So we'd expect after you've been vaccinated with this bivalent vaccine that you'll have good immunity uh, against BA5. Similarly, with the original vaccine, you'll have reasonable immunity to BA5. Um, but uh, importantly, this is about a third of the teeters that this uh, vaccine has for BA1. So obviously a more specific BA4-5 vaccine would be better if we're facing a BA5 or BA5 um, um, ancestor, um, a BA5 uh, 
uh, descendant uh, for our next wave of COVID. The challenge is we really don't know where our next wave of COVID is going to come. Is it going to come from a BA1 um, descendant? Is it going to come from a BA5 or 2 descendant? It's hard to know. So that's why we're proceeding with the BA1 bivalent vaccine. Um, and, that, and there isn't consistencies amongst countries in terms of what they've done. The UK is vaccinated with the bivalent BA1. The United States has, has um, not used BA1, so is using Pfizer and Moderna uh, with the bivalent BA5. So there's no consensus amongst countries, and it's hard to know, it's hard to predict. It, it depends on what, uh, honestly, our next variant will be. Um, we will likely be having the BA5 bivalent um, sometime soon, um, but as it is, uh, no new boosters are being recommended for anyone at the current time. So what about um, vaccines in children? Well, this is, these are the Atagi recommendations, and honestly, these are reasonable recommendations. Uh, and I know you've likely been hearing a lot of um, chatter, um, but these are really reasonable um, recommendations. What we have found is that um, side effects, as reported, uh, tend to be lower for, for children than for, um, for uh, older um, uh, adolescents and young adults. Um, so these are safe, affected vaccines. And we know from, um, from data that, you know, although in general COVID-19 um, is relatively mild in children, it's not mild in all children. Uh, primary vaccination for six months to five years, this is restricted to immunocompromised or high-risk individuals. Uh, for any child over five years, it is recommended. So primary vaccination recommended for any child over five years. In terms of the first booster, um, so the first booster is recommended for those, for children aged 12 to 15 that are immunocompromised or high risk. Under age 12, there is no recommendation for boosting children. Over age 16, the first booster is recommended. So for children over that age, first booster is recommended. Um, but for 12 to 17 year olds, Pfizer is the vaccine registered for a booster. So these children should get Pfizer. Uh, over 16, uh, over 17 years of 18 and over, um, they can get uh, Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, and then in terms of the second booster for children, uh, for uh, over 16 children, under 16, no second booster is recommended, but over 16, it's those that are immunocompromised. That's the, that's the current recommendation. And finally, what's new in testing? So uh, I'm sure many of you have heard from patients that uh, they've, um, they've had um, uh, some of them have uh, used rat tests and not been positive, had symptoms, not been positive for days, or um, weren't positive, and then finally went and got a PCR and were positive on PCR. Um, and that's, that's um, been common and has, has certainly anecdotally been getting more common uh, with BA5. Um, so there are issues with some rat tests in terms of how well they're functioning. Uh, and we do have a new test that's been approved and should be available in November. Your patients may be talking to you, trying to find out your opinion about this. And it's called the EasyNAT COVID-19 RNA test. So what is it? So it's a test that detects viral RNA. So this is different than your rat test. So rat tests identify um, viral proteins, so the antigens, but not the actual RNA itself. So the EasyNAT test identifies viral RNA. So in that way, it's kind of more like the PCR test. Um, uh, 
Uh, and uh, like the PCR test, it's done with a nasal swab and a rats, but it's done at home by the individual. So you buy the kit, then you do the test on your own, and the results are available in 55 minutes. So it's more rapid um, than an individual can get their PCR test result back. It takes a bit longer than the rat test. Uh, it's not a PCR though, uh, and the amplification methods differ. So the beauty of PCR is that it can detect a very small amount of viral RNA because it amplifies the RNA many times so that it can detect even tiny amounts of it. So the EZNAT RNA test, it does amplify, but it has a different method, so it's not amplified as much. So one would expect it will be able to, uh, not able to identify a small amount of, of RNA particles there. Uh, likely available in November, it will cost about $55. Again, an individual can do it in their own home, ready in 55 minutes. It's likely more accurate than a rat test, but less accurate than a PCR test. So it may be a good test for certain patients, um, but, um, but it, it certainly will not replace PCR tests. So that kind of summarizes where we're at with the pandemic. Pandemic's not over, but it's probably over to most of your patients. Um, uh, what, where we are with treatment in terms of use of antivirals and, and that we need to increase our, um, the salience of, of antivirals and thinking about antivirals when we're approaching our patients because we should just assume all patients will get COVID. We've talked about uh, variants, we've talked about bivalent vaccines, and now we've talked about what's new in testing. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope you have a great uh, rest of the day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.